carrots are helpful for supporting estrogen metabolism, really any fiber in particular, um, anything that has fiber, which is plants. Um, so any type of vegetable, um, root vegetable, uh, those are my favorite go-tos. Those are going to help you to metabolize estrogen because estrogen goes to your gut and it comes out your liver. So ramping up your fiber intake overall is going to help tremendously. If you're experiencing hormone issues, anxiety, fatigue, infertility, this is the episode for you. We are talking all things hormones because today I have Lauren Papanos. She is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, hormone specialist, and nutrition researcher with over seven years of experience and has a bachelor's degree in food and nutrition, a master's degree in nutrition science, integrative nutrition, and certified in functional endocrinology. Today's episode was fire and we dive into all the different issues that many women come across when they are trying to regulate their hormones, different foods that actually could be harming their hormones and foods that could help as well as other lifestyle factors, infertility, and so much more. You guys are listening to the Digest This Podcast and I'm your host, Bethany Cameron. Let's get right into the episode. Thank you so much, Lauren, for being on the show today, and it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk. Yeah. So I like to start my podcast now with rapid fire questions. So I'm going to just dive right in, and all you can do is answer yes or no to these questions. Are you ready? Yep. Let's do it. Can intermittent fasting sabotage women's hormones? Yes. Can intermittent fasting help women's hormones? Potentially, yes. (laughs) Is infertility connected to thyroid issues? Yes. Does inflammation in the body cause thyroid issues? Yes. Is liver health the key to hormone balance? Yes. And last one, can hormones repair themselves? Yes. I actually get asked quite a lot on my Instagram about what omega-3 oil I take and if there are any, quote, vegan fish oil supplements out there. Well, I actually don't take any fish oils and I haven't for a very long time. Once I found out, it's dirty little secret, literally. I'm not sure if you know this, but omega-3 fish oil supplements often go rancid, resulting in supplements that don't improve your health and can often have a negative effect since you could potentially be consuming rancid oils. So instead of fish oil, try C15 from the company Fatty15. The fatty acid known as C15 is the first essential fatty acid to be discovered in 90 years. And the best part, it is 100% vegan. Fatty15 is delivering the world's first pure science-backed C15 supplement and has three times the healthy aging cell benefits of omega-3 or fish oil. That's crazy, you guys. This special fatty acid is derived from plants using a patented oxidation-resistant technology resulting in a pure form of C15. It's vegan and contains no flavors, 
fillers, allergens, or preservatives. C15 is the only ingredient in Fatty 15, which I absolutely love that this company just doesn't add anything else. It's 100% pure. Fatty 15 is also proven to resist oxidation factors both in and outside of the body and works in multiple ways. It repairs age-related damage to cells, protects them from future breakdown, plus boosts mitochondria energy output, and it activates pathways in the body that help regulate our sleep, mood, and natural repair mechanisms for healthier aging overall. This functionality leads to a myriad of exciting benefits now and as we age, namely improved metabolic liver and heart health, smoother functioning joints, deeper sleep, and healthier hair, skin, and nails. It comes in a sleek, reusable glass and bamboo jar and refill capsules are shipped to your door quarterly in recycled material pouches. That's just four shipments a year. So whether you're vegan, don't like the taste of fish oil, or don't want to ingest rancid oils that are commonly the case with fish oil supplements, try Fatty 15 to help support and restore your long-term health. And who would I be without offering a discount to the Digestus community? So Fatty15 has graciously given me the ability to offer you 15% off their 90-day subscription starter kit. Just go to fatty15.com slash digest and use code digest and you can cancel anytime. So you're not committed. Again, that's F A. T-T-Y, the number 15.com slash digest or use code digest at checkout. Not a lot of people know that tea bags are full of toxins and when heated, these toxins can easily leach into your drink. I am trying to educate myself and others more and more as studies and research continue to evolve. Not to mention the toxins and chemicals sprayed on the actual tea leaves and herbs commonly mixed into the toxic tea bags. And a lot of companies are now adding natural flavors to their teas. And we all know from my viral Instagram video that natural flavors are not natural at all. They're made in a lab and are added to products to make you more addicted to that product. Natural flavors, toxins, and chemicals are hijacking our taste buds and disrupting our endocrine system and gut health. That's why I appreciate Peak Tea. They triple toxin screen all their teas for purity, ensuring no mold, pesticides, heavy metals, or harmful chemicals are in their tea crystals. And yes, even though they're all certified organic, Peak Tea still takes the extra step to screen all their powders. Another thing I love is that their green teas, black teas, and herbal teas are in powder form, so no toxic tea bags are being heated. Each serving is individually packed, so you can easily pour one serving right into your cup, coffee mug, or blender. Their cold extraction technology gently extracts and preserves active compounds and phytonutrients from their organic ingredients, distilling them into their most bioavailable and maximally effective form. Their patent technology synthesizes the most bioactive isolates from whole food sources to deliver payloads of essential nutrients into your cells for enhanced absorption. And if you're looking for a coffee alternative, 
Peak Tea has a blend called Chaga Energy Elixir, which is 100% caffeine-free, yet still gives you energy without the jitters and can even provide a calmness at the same time. The adaptogenic properties of their wild-harvested chaga, burdock root, and North American ginseng support cellular rejuvenation. Like all their teas, this blend is organic and contains no natural flavors that, like I mentioned, surprisingly, many tea companies are adding to their products now. So be on the lookout for that, you guys. Another top seller from Peak is their ceremonial grade matcha powder. This one is actually quadruple toxin screened because matcha powder can be so heavily sprayed and it's a rare find to come across a good quality source free from chemicals. So there's zero preservatives, zero refined sugar or additives, and it contains EGCG known to help firm and brighten skin as well as L-theanine, which promotes calmness. And it gets even better, you guys, because Peak Tea offers a free return policy within 30 days. So if you try something and you're not happy with it, just send back what you didn't use for a refund. You guys know I have a deal for you as well. So if you go to peaklife.com slash digest, you can receive up to 15% off plus up to two free gifts. That's P-I-Q-U-E l-i-f-e dot com slash digest to get a discount and some freebies. So now that we have piqued people's interest here, I I want to dive a little bit deeper here into those, those topics. So let's first talk about intermittent fasting because I feel like it's almost a double-edged sword because like you had said, it can really sabotage your hormones or potentially even help someone's hormones depending on where they're at in their life. But you are the expert here. So uh, elaborate on that. Yeah. So I like to look at is obviously there's so many different types of hormones. So when we're saying, you know, we try to get away from making blanket statements that things are going to impact all hormones, right? Because all hormones uh, are affected differently in the body. So for example, intermittent fasting might be beneficial for helping lower someone's insulin levels. Insulin is a hormone that helps bring blood sugar into our cells, but intermittent fasting can be really problematic for women, especially in the reproductive years when we're talking about sex hormones and thyroid hormones and adrenal hormones. And these are things like your estrogen, progesterone, your thyroid hormone levels, your cortisol levels that many women in their younger years deal with. So so I like for women that I work with for when they're in those younger years where they are having a, a menstrual cycle, you know, before they're going through menopause, for them to try to limit intermittent fasting because I find those years it tends to be more problematic than when women are postmenopausal. Uh, intermittent fasting tends to be more beneficial potentially in those years for women. Okay. Now I know intermittent fasting can help a lot of people with gut issues. And so for someone that's like, well, I intermittent fast and it's changed the game for my digestion and my gut health. And I know gut health is so important for hormonal balance because if your gut's a wreck, then everything else is a wreck too. So mm -hmm. what would you tell that person where they're like, oh my gosh, like, so you're telling me I have to not intermittent fast? So where, where would you direct them? 
Yeah, it's a good question. We do have to find a sweet spot there because we do know that the gut needs adequate rest. And there's something that's called our migraine motor complex or MMC, which essentially takes about four hours for that full migrating motor complex to really take the food that we've eaten from a meal and then fully move it through the digestive tract. And some people, especially individuals that have low thyroid function, like hypothyroidism, that migrating motor complex may be working even slower than that. And you might need even longer. So yes, you do need gut rest, but it doesn't need to be as extensive as intermittent fasting. And so I would recommend that in that sweet spot, we're looking at intermeal fasting, which essentially is, are we providing enough time in between your meals? Are we, uh, you know, grazing a lot in between because those are can be problematic situations where if we can remove any of these uh, intermeal type situations where you might be even doing things like chewing gum or having beverages that are not water, those might be impacting that migrating motor complex, that digestive system, and you'll notice a much greater improvement to your overall digestive health by really focusing on the intermeal fasting uh, and then trying to prevent the long extended fasting. Um, especially when we're talking, you know, most people when they're intermittent fasting, they're eating dinner and then they're skipping breakfast and they're not eating until lunch the next day. And that's really the most problematic for our hormonal health because our hormones are most active in the morning time. So if you do want to have an extended time period between dinner and breakfast the next day, then it's best to push your dinner up and then still have your breakfast pretty soon upon rising. And that's a really easy way that you can extend that time period between dinner and breakfast. That's a great tip. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, So you're saying that snacking can actually wreck your hormones potentially? Yeah, it can all go into your overall hormonal health because when you snack, then you're getting a blood sugar uh, increase because there's likely some type of carbohydrate in that snack and then insulin responds to that and our insulin levels impact things like our androgen hormones and all of our hormones are interconnected. So if you impact one, you're going to see others impacted downstream. Okay, so let's just say I'm snacking on like an egg or I snack mm-hmm. on just full-on protein, no carbs, or an avocado or something like that. Now, would that have a different effect because it's it's not a carb, so it's not really going to raise my blood sugar levels? Yeah. Yeah, you're probably not going to get an insulin response from it. I mean, you can always test your blood sugar levels and see how your body's responding to those types of foods because everyone's different. You might be getting a subtle response from it. Um, But if it is purely a fat or protein source, there's going to be a much smaller, um, you know, impact to that hormone insulin than if if it is predominantly carbohydrate or if the snack has carbohydrate in it. Okay. So are you saying that blood sugar balance is key to hormone regularity? Mm-hmm. It is it is a very important piece of your hormone production. And when we're talking about that too, it's you know trying to make sure that we're not in low blood sugar states because when we're our bodies in low blood sugar states or hypoglycemia, that's when our body releases more of the stress hormone cortisol to be able to mobilize our sugar that's in storage into our bloodstream. Um, but we also want to try to prevent those hyperglycemia states where there's high blood sugar elevations or there's a lot of blood sugar excursions, we call it, that are happening through throughout the day, because when those happen, then that's when we're seeing that increase to insulin and then other hormones affected downstream. Wow. Okay. So let's just talk about the healthy foods that can actually 
potentially be hurting your hormones like your thi- like and also your thyroid and your skin because I feel like a lot of people, I mean, everyone, I feel like so many women, unfortunately, are having hormonal issues and they're confused, you know, and a lot of people want to go the holistic route. They don't want to go on birth control or, or uh, hormonal uh, treatments or things like that. So they're trying to do everything holistic and natural and there's just so much information out there. Um, so what foods in particular, and we'll go into other things, but what foods could actually be harming your hormones? So I like to look at it as more classes, and then there's foods that fall into those classes that we talk about. And when we're talking about any of these, the dose really does make the poison, right? And also we have to look at is that there's foods that balance one another. So for example, one of these categories is a compound that are called oxalates that are in a lot of plants. Um, And predominantly this is found in spinach, rhubarb, but then you also get it in almonds. And so a lot of companies now are making everything from almond flour, almond oil. So they're really concentrating that almond. And when that happens, you get a much higher concentration of oxalates. But spinach, I would say, is probably the most problematic because when people throw spinach into a meal or into a smoothie, they're throwing way more than a half cup. And a half cup is a pretty decent amount of oxalates. It's about a thousand milligrams of it. So it's quite a bit. And these oxalates, they have this uh, really important relationship with sulfur. And sulfur is what helps to be able to activate our hormones. And so what we want to happen is we want the right balance of oxalates and sulfur so that our hormones can really get deactivated and then reactivated very easily versus our body having to start that whole process over again. Sulfur is also really important for making our body's most endogenous antioxidant, our body's own production of glutathione. Um, You might have heard of that before. And glutathione is incredibly important for all of these things we're talking about, your uh, sex hormones, especially your thyroid hormones, uh, your skin health. And sulfur is what helps our body make that glutathione. And so we can supplement with glutathione. You can eat foods that have antioxidants in them, but it's not quite as powerful as your body making that glutathione on its own because that's the first line of defense when our body is trying to combat uh, you know, oxidative stress and inflammation. Our body goes to that internal glutathione first. So we really want to focus on are we getting enough sulfur to be able to help make that. So that's one category. Um, there's also other categories of foods that are high in things like heavy metals. Uh, we're learning more and more uh, all the time about healthy food companies that are, you know, are coming back high in things like mercury and lead and cadmium. And these heavy metals can be really problematic for our hormones, especially for our thyroid. Um, These heavy metals really have an affinity for our thyroid. And there's even research to show that mercury in particular, which is found in a lot of your very large fish. So things like tuna and shark, swordfish are going to be larger, uh, are going to be higher sources. Um, Then it can actually trigger an autoimmune reaction um, and that it can play a role in autoimmune immune thyroiditis development and hypothyroidism. So, and I see high mercury levels, high cadmium levels in a lot of people that we test. It's really common. Um, And, you know, even if you're only eating these foods a couple times per week, there's a chance that you could be running into issues there. And then you've got things that are, you know, foods that are high in omega-6s. These are things that are such as corn, soy, vegetable oils, and 
sometimes it's not so much that you're eating these foods, uh, but that they're maybe being used as the oil or as the binder or as the preservative and the healthy foods that you are buying. I find this a lot in things like ready-made protein shakes and protein bars and some more of your healthier type granola cereal things that people might be eating, thinking that they're healthy because of the marketing or because you saw it somewhere that, um, you know, someone touted it as healthy. Uh, and then we know for example, with the thyroid that um, soy can be really problematic for the thyroid. Um, there's some research that shows that um, soy, soy can actually inhibit the production of TPO, um, which is thyroid peroxidase. And that's a really important aspect to us making thyroid hormones. This really, that soy and the last class, which are goitrogens, which are found in a lot of our cruciferous vegetables like broccoli and cauliflowers and things, they really tend to be more problematic for our thyroid when you have low iodine levels. And some people don't have low iodine levels. Some people have high iodine levels. The only way to really know is to test. But I would say in practice, we see more people with low iodine levels than we do with high iodine levels because most of the population that we're working with aren't people that are eating processed foods that are not eating a standard American diet. They're already very intentional about the way that they eat. They're you know, eating a lot of these healthier com companies or packaged foods and you know, also whole foods. Um, and they might just not be getting enough iodine in. So soy and, and those goitrogens tend to be more problematic when there is that situation of low iodine intake. I was just about to ask you about soy. That was one of the questions. So now I know your opinion on soy. And what about flax? Because I know that flax can also um, actually increase estrogen levels. Is that correct? So flax is one of your phytoestrogens. There are other types of phytoestrogens that are out there. Almost every plant has phytoestrogens in it. Even antioxidants like berries have phytoestrogens in it to some extent, just because that's what plants naturally make. And phytoestrogens aren't in themselves the problem. Um, phytoestrogens can actually help our body to be able to kind of balance out its estrogen levels. So um, we know that with like estrogen-related cancers, for example, that phytoestrogens can help to be able to bind to the estrogen receptors so that more of that problematic estrogen doesn't take over that binding. So if there is too much of estrogen in the system, those phytoestrogens help to kind of protect the body. So they can be really helpful in some situations, um, but they can be problematic in certain situations as well. Um, and so it really does depend on what is the acute issue. You know, are we dealing with like autoimmune thyroid issues or are we dealing with something like high estrogen levels that maybe we're trying to use phytoestrogens to help to be able to balance out that, um, we call it like proliferative effect or essentially like harmful effect of that estrogen. Yeah. I mean, the, people are just trying to do their best, right? And eat the best that they can. But again, there's just so much information out there. I mean, like you said too, like almonds now, they are just, uh, the market is just saturated with almonds and then the heavy metals. And there's even, honestly, because I mean, heavy metals do come from the ground. So like Swiss chard and Swiss, Swiss chard and sweet potatoes, I know are actually pretty high in heavy metals, but all these natural plants, they, they're not by a company. So it's a little bit hard because each one is individualized. There's no one sweet potato that's the same, et cetera. But I also want to ask about red meat in particular. And what's your opinion on a plant-based diet versus a heavily meat-based diet and how that plays a role in women's hormones? Yeah. So it does depend, again, on your genetics. We know that there are genetic variants. Like if you have ApoE, uh, which 
a good chunk of the population do about 20% that you might have more problems with metabolizing saturated fat, which is the fat source that's in these like red meat products, right? Or really any of your animal proteins. Um, so there are some people that may need to limit it more than others, but Overall, I find that it can be extremely helpful if it is a high quality red meat source for hormonal function, mainly because uh, iron, for example, which is what you're going to find the most prevalent in red meat, we need iron to be able to make thyroid hormones. We know that iron deficiency increases thyroid stimulating hormone, TSH. Uh, so iron is an extremely important aspect. Um, also, if you're eating quality red meat source Sources like beef liver, then those have quite a bit of retinol, vitamin A, which is the active form, and copper in them, B vitamins that are all essential to our hormones and can be really helpful for skin as well because vitamin A is really important for your skin um, and, and also hormone production. So they can be really essential to your hormone function. Um, I think the quality really is the most imperative when we're talking about and it really is important to, you know, be looking into where are the, what are the brands you're buying from? Uh, you know, where, where are you buying your red meat sources? How much of it are you eating? And, you know, I don't think that we can say that a full meat diet or a full plant-based diet are the best strategies. It really is a blend of the two. I think you can be successful with both options if that's the route you choose to go. It just takes a little bit more organization. I work with people on both ends of the spectrum all the time. And and, you know, for someone that's completely plant-based and maybe is fully vegan, there's just more supplementation that we might have to use, or um, there's more pairing of things together to be able to prevent nutrient deficiencies. But I will say that in my years that I see a lot, it, it is very challenging for someone eating a fully plant-based diet to not have nutrient deficiencies, even if they are eating as good as they possibly can and trying to really pair all the right foods together. It is very challenging to not run into a nutrient deficiency issue just because you're going to get more active form of a lot of these vitamins and your animal proteins. But we don't want to also eat, be eating total all plant or all animals because we need those plants. Those plants are what give us fiber for our gut. They're what providing antioxidants to be able to help combat some of this oxidative stress that we're talking about that impacts our hormone function. We need them for our liver and our body's own detoxification. So it really I believe is a balance between both of them and an inclusion of both those quality animal proteins and plants at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. And I know a lot of people with IBS too, they just can't digest a lot of plants and particularly greens. So it's really yeah. hard for them, you know, it, maybe they can find a good green powder or something like that, that would be helpful to supplement. But people with digestive issues, especially it's, it's just one more thing to deal with on top of hormonal issues. So that can definitely be a challenge. What is your take on dairy? Is that an offender? It really depends on how sensitive you are to dairy. Some people that do, that are acne prone, they may be more sensitive to dairy than individuals that aren't acne prone. So it is something that you can uh, play around with if you are experiencing acne, that is kind of your main complaint with things. Um, you know, there are some dairy options that are better for us than others. Um, we know that the protein that is what is comprised of the dairy is going to really impact its inflammatory profile. So uh, we know that a lot large chunk of the population uh, has an inflammatory response to the beta case of morphine that's in the A1 protein that's in a lot of the U.S. cows. Um, so I really prefer A2 as, as often as you can when you are going to 
do dairy, you do get A2 protein naturally when you're doing things that are from goat and sheep. So if you don't have the ability to buy A2 cow's milk um, or A2 cow's uh, cheese and things of that sort, then any of your goat and sheep options are already naturally A2. Um, but if you are going to purchase cow's milk or um, any of those other options, then A2 might be a better option for you. Um, some people that have Hashimoto's and autoimmune thyroiditis, they may still have issues with A2. It, it may still create an inflammatory response for them. Um, there's some reports that people do better with camel milk. Uh, if anyone that's listening is familiar with that, which I've is an tried option. that. Um, okay. <laughs> what do you think about it? On, on, it tasted exactly like milk. No, yeah. no different. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a lot more expensive than regular milk. Totally. Right? Yeah. 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 So whatever you have availability to, you know, but um if it's not creating an inflammatory response for you, then in my eyes, I think that it's a better option than purchasing these like uh, almond milk based products where they're just loaded with all of these preservatives and these gums and these artificial sweeteners. And, you know, they're not really providing any nutritional value. They're kind of just like water that has almond essence in it. Right. So um, if you can do a high quality dairy and it's not creating an inflammatory response for you, then that really, in my opinion, is the better route to go. Research actually shows the average cleaning product contains chemicals that are in fact affecting our lungs. Hazardous chemicals can be found in bleach-based products, disinfectants, degreasers containing several other chemicals commonly referred to as EGBE. It's a common ingredient in liquid soaps and cosmetics even, hairsprays, paint, glue, as well as industrial and household cleaning products. EGBE is listed as possibly toxic to the eyes and skin, central nervous system, respiratory system, kidneys, and liver. The Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry states it also affects development and reproduction. That's just another reason why I use Branch Basics for my cleaning needs. You just mix their non-toxic concentrate with water in a glass spray bottle and you're good to go and clean your entire home. Everything from your kitchen to your bathroom to your living room and even your kids' toys. Branch Basics is also safe and gentle for your pets and I've even personally used it to wash my fruits, veggies, and delicate berries. It's 100% biodegradable, fragrance-free, and contains no harmful substances, obviously. Their concentrate is derived from plants and minerals, and the best part is that you only have to buy one product, which is their do-it-all concentrate. And their concentrate literally lasts for Ever. I probably use it a little bit too much, but it it does last a very, very long time. That's all you need. So if you want to clean up your home and your health by using Branch Basics, they're offering my listeners 15% off. Just use code LITTLESIPPER at checkout to receive a discount. I recommend starting with their starter kit, which includes everything you'll need with simple instructions. Again, you can go to branchbasics.com and enter code LITTLESIPPER at checkout. That's L-I-L-S-I-P-P-E-R for a discount.
We are already into 2024. I cannot believe it. And I'm not going to push any New Year's resolutions. However, cleaning up your personal care products is something I'm seeing a lot of people do for the new year. And I can stand behind that. So if you brush your teeth daily, and I really hope that's you, because if not, well, that's kind of gross. And may I suggest changing up your personal hygiene routine as the first priority of the new year. (laughs) But like most of us, we not only brush our teeth daily, but at least twice a day. And that's a lot of exposure to chemicals that could accumulate and take a toll on your health. Fluoride is the most common ingredient used in today's toothpaste, and it can truly affect our health. And according to the International Association of Oral Medicine and Toxicology, fluoride can contribute to acne and other skin conditions, thyroid dysfunction, TMJ, high blood pressure, and even neurological problems. And acute high-level exposure to fluoride can lead to abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and even muscle spasms. Thankfully, there's a new ingredient proven to be just as effective as fluoride and completely non-toxic. It's called hydroxyapatite, and it's the active ingredient used in bite toothpaste, non-toxic bits. Unlike fluoride, hydroxyapatite works by remineralizing enamel from within, reaching the innermost part of a dental cavity and binds to plaque and harmful bacteria in our mouth. Bite has been in my household for about two years now, and both my husband and I love using their fluoride-free tablets for our oral health. I even love their mouthwash tablets that are so convenient to travel with or just keep in your purse for a quick mouth refresher. For the mouthwash, you just bite down on a tablet with a bit of water, then swish it around in your mouth. You can even do this in your car. And for the toothpaste bits, I typically take two at a time and chew them up in my mouth, wet my toothbrush, and then start brushing. Bite also has a natural teeth whitening kit. So if you've been looking for a natural toothpaste without the paste, try Bite toothpaste tablets, which come in glass jars that look super chic on your vanity and is doing good by not only providing a healthier alternative to toothpaste, but also for the planet with their no waste refillable system. Bite is offering my listeners 20% off your first order. Just go to trybite.com slash digest or use code digest at checkout to claim this deal. That's T-R-Y-B-I-T-E dot com slash digest. Again, just go to trybite.com slash digest to get 20% off. Yeah. And I know that too, the quality of the dairy, so not just the A2 or the goat's milk and sheep's milk, which I love, but um, if it make sure it's grass fed, make sure if you can, you know, organic grass fed, raw milk, if you have that available to you and not all the states have that option, but still a lot of states do sell raw milk. And that is such a great option. I've recently just started incorporating that and I've, you know, had no issues. So that's just another option. Also cultured, at least for me, if you have gut issues, cultured milk such as yogurt or kefir, that's another option. I typically don't 
eat a lot of cheese. If I do make cheese, it's like for my husband, right? So Mm -hmm. like you said, everyone is individual and you have to really experiment and see. And perhaps maybe you can't do dairy right now because your gut is just a wreck and you're really working on your gut health. But eventually you may have that dairy option and venture out more such as like even I myself, I, I couldn't do dairy for like ever. And now I'm drinking raw milk now. So, you know, it, um, don't ever think that this is like for the rest of your life. And I feel like a lot of people think, oh my gosh, this is like, this is it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are, those are some really great tips and insights here. So I also have a question. I don't know if you've heard this, but there's something going around the internet. It's been doing going around for a while. And they say that if you eat a raw whole carrot, it helps you detox extra estrogen in your body. Have you heard that? Yeah. <laughs> it, it can be a small component that can help, but I really don't think it's going to move the needle as much as uh, maybe what you see on Instagram or on TikTok, <laughs> as they tell you. Uh, but est- uh, carrots are helpful for supporting estrogen metabolism. So are things like your cruciferous vegetables, really any fiber in particular, um, anything that has fiber, which is plants. Um, so any type of vegetable, um, root vegetable, uh, those are my favorite go-tos. Those are going to help you to metabolize estrogen because estrogen goes through your gut and it comes out your liver. So ramping up your fiber intake overall is going to help tremendously. Okay. Now I want to talk about, so at the very beginning, you answered the yes or no questions. And I asked you, is infertility connected to thyroid issues? So a lot of people are trying to get pregnant. So let's talk about infertility and the connection between that and your thyroid, as well as inflammation causing thyroid issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Your thyroid is incredibly important to fertility. And unfortunately, a lot of times when women are experiencing infertility, they never get their thyroid tested, or maybe they're just getting their thyroid stimulating hormone, their TSH levels tested. And TSH is not a thyroid hormone. TSH is a pituitary hormone, which is part of our brain that just signals from our brain down to our thyroid. But your thyroid hormones are T4 and T3. And so we really want to make sure that we're looking at those and that we're also testing for thyroid antibodies because majority of women that do have hypothyroidism, low thyroid function, which is the most common in women, there is also hyperthyroidism where you have overactive thyroid function. Um, But most women, it is um, Hashimoto's, it's autoimmune in nature. So it's really important to look at that um, because that will impact the fertility piece of things. Um, When your thyroid is functioning low, it's really a sign that our mitochondria, which are really where energy generation happens, are kind of taking a nap, if you can think of it as that. They're slowing down and they're conserving energy because the body senses a state of stress, right? It senses that it needs to conserve energy for some purpose. And that's what's slowing down the thyroid. Your mitochondria are incredibly important for progesterone production. Um, they That's where your sex hormone production actually is initiated. And so your progesterone levels, uh, progesterone is a hormone that is progestation, which means that it's going to help you to be able to grow the baby especially in the first trimester before the placenta takes over. So it's really important that in that first trimester that your thyroid hormone levels, your progesterone levels are in a really healthy range because that's what's going to help with the growth of the baby 
and that really rapid phase of development. Your thyroid does naturally go a bit overactive during pregnancy, and that is supposed to happen, and that's because your body is growing the baby, and our thyroid, think of it as the master regulator of all speed in our body. Our thyroid doesn't just regulate things like our metabolism and our weight, it also regulates the speed of digestion, the speed of growth of our hair, the speed of growth of our nails, and the speed of growth of the baby. So our thyroid is going to be an essential piece to that. And if there is low thyroid function or our immune system is attacking our thyroid hormones and destroying them, which is what happens with uh, Hashimoto's, then we're not going to be able to grow the baby and and be able to maintain that progesterone production as we should. Wow. Okay. So I have a question. Do you think perfectionism causes inflammation in the body? I know that question is a bit out of left field, but I truly <laughs> think that the more perfectionists have, like the more, uh, like more perfectionists have more hormonal issues. Um, so I can't help but wonder if perfectionist, uh, perfectionism creates more stress in the body and then therefore leads to hormonal issues. Absolutely. Yeah. And I can, I can say that as a recovering perfectionist and hormonal <laughs> disaster. <laughs> okay. Yes, yeah, very much. So, um, I mean, I do think that it does play a big role. It's not the only factor, but I would say there is a strong correlation between the two. And that's because our nervous system, so the state of if you're in fight or flight or rest and digest, heavily influences our hormonal function. And so if you are constantly overachieving and perfectionism and living off of cortisol, your stress hormones, then you can imagine how that's going to affect your hormones downstream. And that's all of your hormones, things like, I mean, we know that cortisol impacts your, um, your blood sugar levels, your insulin. Um, it also impacts things like your thyroid hormones and also your sex hormones, uh, especially your progesterone levels. Yeah. Well, many people that have gut issues also have hormonal issues. So do you yeah. think that's due to the inability that IBS sufferers are not getting the proper nutrition due to their limited diet and also aren't able to absorb vitamins and minerals properly due to their condition resulting in deficiencies? Do you think that's mm -hmm. the cause or do you think maybe hormonal issues are causing IBS? It can definitely be uh, a kind of a double-edged sword there. Yeah, because your, like I said, your thyroid does regulate the speed of digestion. So uh, there are a lot of individuals where, you know, they come to work with us and they have this recurrent SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and they've been on multiple rounds of treatment and it's not getting better. And that's when we uncover, we look at the hormones and we uncover that, oh, it's not getting better because your thyroid function is really low and you have thyroid receptors in your gut. Your gut microbes actually convert about 20% of your thyroid hormones because our thyroid hormones, they're not converted in our thyroid. Only a very small percentage are converted there. Most of it's converted in our liver and our gut. So um, there is a chunk of people that have IBS and um, their hormones are a piece of that because the hormones are regulating the speed of digestion. And if you're not moving food through your digestive system, it's got more chance to ferment and that's going to lead to more chance of bacterial overgrowth happening in that small intestine and more bloating, more belching, uh, more constipation, all of those issues that not everyone with IBS suffers with. Some people are on the other side of the spectrum, but a good chunk of people do. Um, on the other end, like you mentioned initially, you know, can 
the nutrient deficiencies and things that happen with digestive disorders um, cause hormone imbalances. And yeah, very much. I uh, was looking at a patient's labs last night and, you know, she's been on supplementation for omega-3s, vitamin D, B vitamins for several months. And they're just not, the levels aren't improving as they should be. And she's been consistent. She's been very compliant with things. And so I said, you know, we've got to reinvestigate your gut and see what's going on there because that has to be the bottleneck and why we're not seeing these levels increase if you're being compliant with intake through your diet and intake through supplementation. Um, there's probably not enough acid or good enough absorption ability for those vitamins to really do much for your hormone production. Yeah, it's like a double-edged sword. It's like, okay, to fix my hormones, I need to fix my gut, but maybe I need to fix my hormones to help fix my gut. So yeah. <laughs> where, do, where do you go with that, right? Um, now, let's just say, for example, someone knows they have a, a thyroid issue. Yeah. What would you do to fix that? We definitely start with the gut. The gut's going to be a really large piece of things. And then we'd also look at their nutrient uh, balance or kind of nutritional profile of things because the thyroid is extremely mineral dependent. We know that, you know, thyroid hormones are made off the iodine, which is a mineral. Um, you also need amino acids. You need B vitamins. Like I said, iron deficiency increases thyroid hormone, TSH levels. So your mineral status of things like magnesium and selenium and iron and such are going to play a really important role in thyroid regulation. So we want to look at that. We want to look at, are there things that you're eating that are those healthy foods that we talked about maybe that are actually blocking some of those nutrients from being able to do the job that they need in the thyroid? Um, you know, where is the inflammation? Where's the source of the inflammation? I truly believe that inflammation is the root cause of all hormonal imbalances. And so, you know, inflammation is a really broad term that can mean a lot of things, but the gut is a very big source of inflammation. Um, we have a large chunk of cytokines from our immune system that are made in the gut. So the gut plays a really big role there. And sometimes people, they don't even have GI symptoms and there's, there's inflammation going on in the gut. Um, it's very common. And so we want to investigate, you know, what, what do you need to be able to help support that gut function? And are you getting in the right nutrients and the right healing support to be able to really improve how your gut is functioning every day? Yeah. Now, uh, we talked about some foods that are offending, right? That could be uh, detrimental or harming your hormonal health. But let's talk about some foods that could actually help, especially cortisol lowering, lowering foods. Like what foods can help lower your cortisol levels? Well, cortisol and insulin have a really strong relationship together. And so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we want to prevent a hyperglycemia state where you are maybe eating things that are creating these big blood sugar excursions or these big blood sugar increases that are happening. Um, but we really want to, if there's a high cortisol situation, we want to prevent also uh, having these low blood sugar states because that's going to further drive that cortisol. So carbohydrates in general can be helpful for lowering cortisol, Carbohydrates can uh, be problematic and for other purposes though, right? So we want to look at is what are the type of carbohydrates that you're eating and how are you eating them at your meals? Because that's really where you're going to get the best of both worlds there. Um, so for example, you know, root vegetables, 
um, legumes, um, you know, maybe some fruit sources. This really will depend on your needs and your, you know, what your body, if you have IBS and things, of course, there might be some limitations to some of those food sources. But if you don't, then there might be um, more options that are available to you. Um, but pairing a small amount of those with each meal that you have and really focusing on how you're pairing those foods together is going to be really important for helping to be able to lower those cortisol levels. Um, we also know that your minerals play a really big role, especially electrolytes. So if you're not getting in enough sodium, that could be an issue that's that's causing more issues within your cortisol levels. And so a lot of people, when they start eating healthy, they just, they're not adding any salt to foods that they're cooking. And then maybe they're not eating a lot of packaged things that contain salt and their sodium intake drops significantly and their potassium intake increases significantly because they're eating a lot more plant sources. And that's great if you're eating more potassium. We need potassium. It's very important for us, but we need to make sure that we're balancing that with your sodium levels. And that's where I would look at incorporating an unrefined salt um, that is going to help you to not only provide some of that natural sodium, but also some of the trace minerals alongside of that sodium so that you can try to help support that cortisol production. Sodium helps to be able to kind of blunt our cortisol levels. So if you are in a high cortisol state, for example, we know that you actually excrete, you release more sodium through your urine. And so being in a state of heightened stress actually increases your sodium need. And so we want to make sure that we're getting it enough throughout the day to be able to help regulate that cortisol production. And then I would say the last thing that I really like for cortisol levels is vitamin C. Um, vitamin C is found in almost every fruit and vegetable, but it's most potent in your citrus fruits like oranges and limes and such. Strawberries are a great source of vitamin C. Um, our adrenal glands store more vitamin C than anywhere else in the body. So they're extremely vitamin C dependent and um, which makes the need for vitamin C even more important. And I see with a lot of people that are having adrenal issues um, and maybe that are also their livers kind of working in overdrive, trying to detoxify uh, a lot of substances that they might be consuming like uh, heavy metals and things of that sort, their vitamin C levels start to plummet and they actually, their need for vitamin C increases pretty dramatically. And the, the half-life of how long vitamin C stays in our system is very short. So instead of what a lot of individuals do, which is like go out and buy a vitamin C, supplement and they make a dose a high amount of vitamin C. Um, instead of doing that, we really want to focus on trying to get in a, a smaller dose of vitamin C more often throughout the day, because that's what's going to help to be able to keep that little vitamin C adequate in the body and also help to be able to maximize that absorption of how vitamin C really functions. Such a great tip there. So if you guys heard that, I want to reiterate. So instead of taking a mega dose of vitamin C once a day, try little bits throughout the day and that'll make a huge difference. That's a great, great tip, Lauren. And then you like going back to electrolytes and hydration. I mean, that's so important, right? And I feel like you said you were talking about the liver and detoxing and a lot of people just overlook hydration and they're not hydrating and something very simple like that could really help your body detox different hormones, extra estrogen, like all these things where it's like, oh, I just needed to like drink more water. And like sometimes things just kind of fall into place, but kind of going into that in, in the whole detox topic here, let's talk about the liver and how that is connected to hormone balance. 
Yeah. So our hormones, especially your estrogen goes through your gut and it comes out your liver um, or sorry, it goes through your liver and it comes out your gut. So your liver plays really an extremely important role in that middle stage of it's a bottleneck to being able to excrete hormones. And what happens is if that process isn't working efficiently, then those hormones like estrogen can get reabsorbed and then go back into recirculation. And that can cause issues with not just estrogen, high estrogen levels, but also issues where that estrogen becomes more, like I said earlier, proliferative, which just means it becomes more problematic in the body and, um, you know, can also create free radicals and things that can drive some of this oxidative stress and inflammation that we're talking about. So the liver is really important as that bottleneck there. Um, like I said earlier as well, the liver is also where about 70% of your thyroid hormones are converted. Majority of that happens there where T4, which is our inactive thyroid hormone, gets converted over to the free active form T3 that happens in the liver. So we want to make sure that we're supporting liver function if we're seeing that maybe someone has a normal TSH but low free T3 levels. I see that a lot. Um, and that's you know sometimes why people aren't diagnosed with something like hypothyroidism, um, but they are having a lot of the hypothyroid symptoms. Uh, and that's because they have a normal TSH, but their T3, that actual activation hormone, um, isn't quite where it should be for its role and things like growth and speed of digestion and metabolism and such. So what can we do to be able to support our liver? There's really three phases of our liver, phase one, phase two, and phase three. Each of those phases requires something different. Um, phase three is really the end stage in the gut. And when we're talking about the liver, we always want to kind of work backwards in terms of being able to support the body. So we always would start with the gut first and make sure that you're getting in enough fiber and uh, potentially some supplementation that's going to help you to be able to, you know, just go to the bathroom more often and have more solid bowel movements to where you're excreting more of these toxins and hormones that are going through that system. And then in phase one and phase two, it's really important that we lean on things like amino acids, which is what is in proteins, uh, antioxidants, which we find in a lot of our plant foods and things like that glutathione, that master antioxidant that I mentioned earlier, those are going to be really essential to being able to help with both that phase one and that phase two liver detoxification. So some of these things you can, I mean, all of them, you can definitely get through your diet. You can eat through your diet. And so we want to start there and make sure that you are getting those in as much as possible. And then that's where we can also use supplementation to maybe reach higher dosages that we might need to be able to expedite that process, make things work a little bit more efficiently. Okay, great. And there's a liver detox. I'm sure you've heard of it with olive oil and grapefruit. It's like a little mm -hmm. elixir. Would you recommend that? could be helpful to, you know, I mean, olive oil, for example, has tons of vitamin E and antioxidants in it. So you're definitely getting in some of the compounds that you need there, but it definitely isn't going to provide all of the aspects that you need for full detoxification. And I think that's where a lot of the marketing detoxification, I, I don't even like using the word detox as much because it, you know, it kind of has a bad connotation because there's a lot of like detox pills and uh, there's, you know, detox green, uh, green juices and things of that sort but they're really not going to help with detoxification. Detoxification requires those amino acids. It requires the fibers for the you know end stage at that phase three. And so a lot of them just aren't complete in my opinion, and they're lacking in something that's going to help with that full uh, detoxification. 
Okay, got it. No, that's so good. Now, um, I want to talk about estrogen now for a second because you hear a lot of people and they're like, oh, I'm estrogen dominant. I'm estrogen dominant. First of all, how do they know they're estrogen dominant? Like what should someone look for? Are there uh, physical signs or feelings internally, externally? And it's like obvious, like I am estrogen dominant. What should people look for? So- Estrogen dominant can be two things. It can be, you know, often that you have high estrogen levels, your estrogen levels are above range of where they should be, um, and you still are making progesterone. Or it can be that you have normalized estrogen levels, but you're just not making any progesterone. And so estrogen is the dominant hormone. So if we're just tackling someone that has really high estrogen levels, they might be experiencing things like constipation. They might not be going to the bathroom often because remember that that estrogen comes out the poop, right? It comes out your stool. So if you're not going to the bathroom often, you could definitely end up in a situation of estrogen dominance. So that's one thing to look at. Um, More symptoms that you might notice throughout the month could be tender breasts, especially right before your period. Uh, You might notice that you feel really puffy, like you have a lot of water retention or bloating right before you start your period. Um, You might experience more um, just issues with feeling like there's more constipation and slow motility that's happening around that time of the month as well. So those are some things that some people can report during the month that might help us kind of glean insight into estrogen dominance. And then there's other types of like conditions, like if someone experiences um, ovarian cysts often, or fibroids, those can sometimes be high estrogen type issues. And so that might also kind of, you know, raise my my uh, sparks of interest that there might be some issues going on with estrogen levels. But I think that a lot of women are also, from what we see when we do testing, there are a lot of women who are just dealing with low progesterone levels. And that's the reason why they're in this estrogen dominant type situation, because they're just not making enough progesterone to help counterbalance that estrogen. It's a lot easier for our body to make estrogen our body fat can make estrogen. It's one of the reasons why women have more body fat than men do is to be able to help with that estrogen. So it's much easier for us to make estrogen. It's a lot harder to make progesterone. Uh, And when our body is in that fight or flight state where there's those high cortisol situations, whether that's coming in through diet or it's because things go on in your gut or from lifestyle factors, your body takes those resources away from progesterone production and funds more of those resources over towards making cortisol because cortisol is a survival hormone. Our body has to make it. It doesn't have to make progesterone levels. That's like a nice to have type hormone. So are you saying that stress is the main cause of decreasing our progesterone? it has a really big role in low progesterone levels. There are some uh, outliers to that where they maybe don't have, you know, big amounts of stress in their life. Um, But stress can come from many different ways, from many different angles, right? Um, Your diet can be a stressor on the body. Um, Exercise can be a stressor. Your environment can be a stressor. So it's not always that someone maybe feels stressed, but there could be in things that are actually creating the stress response in the body. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we increase our progesterone naturally? What are ways to do that? Well, we want to look at is, is there things that are causing this, you know, high cortisol type situation? That's going to be a big one. And so if we can improve your cortisol, improve lower cortisol levels, that's going to help the body um, make more progesterone. Um, there's also certain nutrients that there's been research on that can help with progesterone levels. 
Uh, we know like vitamin C, vitamin B6, for example, can be really supportive for progesterone production. Um, there's certain herbs that can be really helpful as well that may be useful. Um, things like chase tree or Vitax um, can work in some women, but not it doesn't work for everyone, you know, and there are some caveats to that of certain, you know, hormones that you might not want to use an herb like that. So vitamin C and B6 tend to be a little bit safer of an option that can help. Um, but I would definitely address the stress first because that's going to move the needle the most, um, you know, more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, so we're talking about estrogen. We're talking about all these hormones. If they're out of whack, if they're out of balance, but let's talk about why we should even care that yeah. they're out of balance because yes, there's ways to fix them. Yes. There's signs to look for, but why should we care? And what's the, what's, what's the result of basically hormone imbalance? Yeah. Well, hormones, I mean, they really impact the way that you feel and function every day, right? So if you want to experience less fatigue or less mood swings or easier periods or um, less you, anxiety, uh, I've heard, yeah, right? I mean, yeah. people have anxiety yeah. through the roof and they're like, why do I have anxiety? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why I really shifted my career to focusing on the endocrinology side of things is because... I just realized that hormones control everything and we can't outsmart them. You know, I think for so many years of my own life, uh, I tried to outsmart my hormones and kind of run from them and think that I could, um, I could make things happen without thinking about my hormones. And I couldn't, you know, it wasn't until I kind of said, okay, hormones, you're going to rule this. Let me listen to you and give you what you need that really everything started to improve. And so you know, if you're feeling any of those types of imbalances and how you feel every day, then hormones play a really big role. But we also know on a more, you know, chronic level that hormones also impact things like our bone health, um, low estrogen, low progesterone, low testosterone. Our uh, levels are correlated with low bone mineral density and more recurrent bone fractures. Um, they impact our heart. Estrogen is incredibly important for our heart. Estrogen's been linked, low estrogen levels have been linked to dementia. Um, so we know that it plays a role in our cognitive function and our brain. So they're having a much bigger role than just the way that you feel every day. They're going to really impact the bigger picture of things like chronic disease development. Um, thyroid hormones also play a role here too. We know that the thyroid is, is an incredibly important role to our cardiac um, health and uh, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer. And so if we're not looking at why someone has low thyroid or low estrogen levels and helping support that when someone has issues like high blood pressure and, um, you know, maybe elevated cholesterol levels, family history of cardiovascular issues, then it's really not looking at the full complete picture of, of how to prevent something happening in, in someone's cardiac health. Yeah, it's so important that people need to know that hormone health is, it goes far beyond just periods and infertility. I mean, it's yeah. your whole entire, you know, well-being. So um, now where does someone start and where do they go if they want to regulate their hormones and they just, they're, they're lost and maybe they've gone to their family practitioner or nothing's been working for them, right? And they do want to go the holistic route. Like where do they turn? Where do they start? 
Yeah. So I, as I mentioned earlier, the really the first step from all the years that I've been working in this field, the number one thing that I've seen is that inflammation has to be resolved first. And before you're going to start to see improvements happening in your hormones, you've got to address that before anything else. And once that is addressed, then you should start to see improvements to your hormone levels. So I've really created like a four-part framework to that. And that framework starts with opening up and that's where we support the body's natural detoxification systems. So we support things like the gut and the liver and the kidneys and the lymphatic system to be able to help really get things moving. Because I mentioned earlier, that liver, that, that gut is where a lot of these hormones are converted. It's where they're removed. And so that's going to play a really important role in the overall hormone balance piece of things. So that's really step one. And then step two is resolving and that's removing anything that's driving uh, inflammation in the body. You know, we talked about some of these foods that can, um, you know, cause some of these hormonal imbalances that can um, contribute to things. And a lot of those work through the way that they're impacting things like oxidative stress and inflammation in our body and how that then impacts our hormone health. And then the third step is really repair. And that's where we really nailed down giving the body the nutrients that it needs, these minerals that we talked about, these building blocks that are going to help us to be able to make hormones, focusing on blood sugar, focusing on the stress response and the body, the nervous system state. Um, and that can be through both diet and the way that you eat throughout the day. And it can also be through complementary things like your lifestyle, your exercise, and just, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to completely overhaul everything you're doing. It's just fine tuning and drawing awareness to how you could do things a little bit better, a little bit more efficiently for yourself so that it can improve the way that your hormones are functioning. And that's really how you get to step four, which is hormone rebalancing. And so I really see hormone balance is that final step once step one through three has happened, but you have to go through one through three to be able to get to four. Um, and so, you know, that all that framework, that's what we I put together into all the programs that we offer um, to be able to help people, whether it's through, um, you know, a, a lab testing based program or something that doesn't include lab testing that's just for diet and um, supplementation type recommendations. Yeah, that's that's a great tip because a lot of people just think that maybe they need to add something to their diet or routine or lifestyle where maybe first they need to address the inflammation, remove and detox from what is just bombarding them already. Um, so that's great. And so Lauren, where can people find you and where can they connect with you? Yeah, so um, my program is called, uh, well, our, our my company is called Functional Fueling, and the program that we offer is called Inflammation Hormony, H-O-R-M-O-N-Y, um, and you can learn more about that at functionalfueling.com. My Instagram is functional.fueling, and then I also have a podcast, which is called Strength and Hormones. Wonderful. Well, I'll be, uh, be sure to put all those links in today's show notes so people can easily access and find you. And I just want to thank you again for coming on the show today. And I hope that everyone listening uh, will share it with someone and reach out to Lauren if you are needing some hormonal help and guidance. Thanks for listening to this episode of Digest This. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app to let us know. If you're ever wondering how you can support me and this podcast, sharing it with your friends and family is the best way. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and edited by Mike Fry. To email the show, message us at digestthispod at gmail.com. See you next time. The content of this show is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for individual medical and mental health advice and does not constitute a provider-patient relationship. 
As always, talk to your doctor or health team first.